Welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. Uh, and I'm here with Sarah Pascual, our executive director. I'm still here. Hey, everybody. And so uh, we are in week 50 and uh, the, the riveting and fascinating book of Ecclesiastes is uh, what you've had to read this past week. It's a um, lot. Yeah. And it's one of the most unique books, I would argue, in the Old Testament. Uh, it was unique enough that uh, a lot of rabbis actually wanted it out of uh, the, the Hebrew canon, uh, but they got outvoted and we have it. Um, and so it's a weird word to begin with, but it's just the Greek word for the, 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 the Koheleth, the, the, the preacher, the teacher, the assembler that we encounter right at the beginning. Um, so it's just a very Greek name for a Hebrew book that we have, but it is what it is. Um, and there's a common refrain that we encounter around the word Havel, uh, that we see multiple times, which Sarah, what does Havel mean? Well, it means vapor or smoke. So it's this idea of something that's fading. And it's also this sort of enigma. If you watch the Bible Project, he gave this great example of how it appears solid, but you can't quite capture it with your hands. So depending on the translation you're reading in the New Testament or in the in your English Bible, it'll say meaningless or vanity or things like that. But what he's really describing is this sort of vapor or smoke that is you can't capture or really understand. Yeah, it's disappearing. It changes kind of all the time it vanishes and so it, it almost creates a sense of futility or confusion or meaninglessness all kind of mixed into this idea uh, that the author is kind of dealing with vanities are best attempt uh but yeah yeah um, i think so- something great about reading this book i don't know if you read it i do my reading first thing in the morning is it, it's not like it's not a real pick-me-up when you read it and it's a good reminder for us as readers and learners of God's word to remember that we don't just go to the Bible for some sort of like shot in the arm that's going to make us feel good or for the pick me up, but we go to learn the deep and enduring things that sometimes require work and sometimes require some heavy feelings. And I think that's probably what you experienced in focusing on Ecclesiastes this week. Yeah. And, and scholarships even all over the map on how to interpret this. Is it positive? Is it pessimistic? Is it coherent? Does it feel incoherent? Like it feels like a lot of different pieces are just kind of jumbled together. It's insightful, confused. Is it actually orthodox in what it's saying? Or is it a bit heterodox? Like all these kind of ideas. And and even even whether the author is even saying, do like I did or don't do like I did. It, it's hard to it's hard to parse all that out. Um, even Sarah and I talking through this before the podcast, it's like we both have a little bit of a different take. And I think that's kind yeah. of how this book works. And and Sarah and I even talking, I think that's a little bit how wisdom literature sometimes works all together as if um, the, the author of Proverbs and the author of Ecclesiastes and the author or Paul bringing some of his wisdom to the table and, and um, Song of Solomon, like all sitting down around the table, having a discussion of what is wisdom and what is true, what is right and what should we pursue? And they have different perspectives and a little bit of a different take. And, and I think this book's one of those too, where it's like, well, I'm going this route. And, and, and even hearing that you can go, I can't tell if he's being positive or negative, and I can't tell exactly what the author's really after. And this book kind of wraps all that together. Yeah, which I think, I mean, even that example of everyone sitting around the table, what it what it brings us back to is this understanding and God's sovereign control, his sovereignty over all things, and, and that we don't fully get it or understand it. And I think that's probably one of the main themes that Certainly any book. author would pull out well of this book and of really of any author would yeah. pull out of wisdom, but it's something to focus on as you read this book is the sovereignty of God and the eternality of God compared to the temper, the temporality of us. And then I don't know what the opposite of sovereignty is. What's the opposite of like the, the non-sovereignty. Yeah. The, the finiteness of us. Yeah. yeah. 
It's comparison oh. of, of we see God as very great and other than us as we read this book. Yeah. And so we're introduced to this teacher, preacher, gatherer is also one way to translate that word as if they're gathering all these sayings. And he attributes the sayings to Solomon. Um, there might be reasons for that. Maybe they are handed down sayings of Solomon uh, that he attributes to. Maybe um, he is um, uh, almost using Solomon's name as a representation of the kind of wisdom he's writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the author uh, kind of starts off with this very cynical view of history as if everything repeats sunrises, sunsets, it's an endless cycle. What's the point? There's nothing new under the sun. Um, this sort of um, kind of bleak start to the book. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of jump to like a positive note right away. And I think we need to sit in the Havel for a little bit, but we do have a new thing now. And that is the work of Christ and the fact that we are new creations. And there is a time this author didn't know about it that would come when something new would come and it would change everything. Yeah. And there was a promise of it back then, but um, this idea of the of this cycle that God works in is very true, and it does feel empty, but we also have this hope in Christ. Yeah, yeah, there's a tension to live in as, as um, post-Jesus, as we read these things, where the author's like, it just doesn't feel like there's a purpose to it, and you're sort of standing there going, no, there is a purpose to it, yeah. and, um, and but the author's wrestling through that, and wrestling through emotions that many of us probably feel around certain things, like, ah, work just feels like pointless. Yeah. yeah, and... And and in the authors, the authors wrestling through that question, and ultimately, yes, in Jesus, we we get that much more context that we could do all things for the glory of God. But the, but the authors becomes it becomes a book that we could approach to be like, okay, like wrestling through those things, like it's okay, like for me to wrestle and, and wonder the purposeness, the purposefulness of certain situations in my life, and still trust and still rest that God is sovereign in those things. Yeah. So something you probably figured out as we read is that you have the the author or the narrator who introduced this. And then basically the majority of the book is him quoting somebody else. Right. So he starts out by saying, hey, listen to this guy, quotes a guy, and then which we'll get to next week, wraps it up with some final thoughts on what this guy has to say. Yeah. So don't confuse or be careful not to confuse the author with the teacher. Right. They're different. <clears throat> and he speaks to vanity uh, that even wisdom uh, in some ways has vanity that with all the wisdom that the, the author or the, the preacher, the speaker has gotten um, that there's still gaps in his wisdom. There's still twisting of this rhythm. There's something that's crooked, something that's lacking. And so um, no matter how hard someone would ponder and have wisdom that it, it's, it still can't be, there's still things that can't be straightened out. Uh, and in the end that produces grief and sorrow, things that are still vanity for this author. Yeah, we can oftentimes see it in others more than we can see it in ourselves, but we're all hustling for something. And this author is pointing out, like, no matter what you're going for, if it's it's wealth or if it's prominence or prominence or if it's, you know, a spouse and kids or if it's wisdom, it's all going to end up kind of being nothing. Yeah. You're, you're not going to find what you're looking for. Yeah. And he goes, into that. He goes I, I went after wisdom, but I also went after folly. Like I had wisdom, but then I tried other things, drunkenness, wealth, power, women. Um, yeah. and, and it just did not meet the the satisfaction that I wanted. I couldn't understand the purpose of it all. Yeah. So he's, we see him trying out wisdom and we see him trying out pleasure. And he's like, uh, it's also not satisfying. This is where we can kind of like imagine an old guy in a rocking chair. I think of like rocking back and forth and telling you about like all of the different things he did in his life. And he keeps coming back and saying, ah, it was Havel. It was meaningless. It was vanity. Yeah. But, it, but he still holds up wisdom. He, yeah. he still says that like, all right, it, it's still better to be wise than to be delusional like a fool. Like, yes, we still have the same story. We're all going to die. The, the, the end's still the same. But at the same time, I'd rather be awake to the fact that things are vanity than asleep to the fact that things are vanity. 
Yeah. Um, and, so, and I think we'll get to that reason as we continue to walk through. Right now, he's just kind of saying, like, it's better to be wise and foolish. And then we'll kind of get there as we yeah, continue Yeah, so he, he eventually it. will deal with the soberness of that. Um, and, and he even starts thinking about his work. And, and on some level, he's like, wow, why, why work so hard if if you accumulate a lot and then pass it on to somebody else who, who knows what they're going to do with these things. And, and, and that once again, feels um, some despair about that. But even then he's like, well, that's vanity too. Even feeling despair about that fact feels like vanity. Um, And so he gives us um, one of the first refrains that we're going to see throughout of, of him sort of going. So what God has given you, like what things to eat, things to drink, good work, like do those things and find a way to enjoy them. Yeah. As you, as you read, I hope you noticed this theme of the word enjoyment or joy or um, rejoice, things like this that will that are a theme throughout the book. And so he's saying, all right, so what if it's all meaningless? But don't get so focused on this big idea of this philosophical understanding of meaninglessness that you forget to enjoy the small things, whether that's good food or good friends. Um, don't don't reject God's gifts to you of small little things just because you you realize how meaningless it all yeah, is. Or, or just because you can't see the perspective and understand the meaning, yeah. it feels meaningless, doesn't mean it is. And right. so at least enjoy it mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and think of it as a gift of from God. Yeah. Then we get uh, what became a pretty famous bird song on uh, the time for everything. Uh, and the poetry here, I think, uh, is meant to sort of almost be this repetitive drum uh, that, that almost kind of speaks to the monotony of life of like, look, there's good, there's bad around just about everything. So there's life, there's death, there's love, there's, there's sadness, there's all these different things and they're all there and they're all mixed together in what we call life. And, and it's meant to sort of leave us with like, ah, oh, that, that just feels very monotonous. And some, some of us experience life that way where every day kind of feels like a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. Um, and, and the author's kind of drawing that out. Yeah. I think one thing that stood out to me as I kind of reflected on that section is just this idea of us as as believers in Christ is that we can receive and live in submission to the different seasons that God has in our lives. And it brings me a lot of comfort when I reflect on the fact that God exists outside of time and he knows what he's doing. Uh, when I don't understand the season I'm in or what the time is for, God knows. Yeah. And, and the author kind of gets there a little bit in that next section uh, in chapter three, where he really points out like, all right, God has given everything its proper time. And he's also put this idea of eternity in, yeah. in the hearts and the minds of people. And so um, I think what he's drawing towards is that like, there's some idea in, in, in humanity, in us as creation, that there's a limitless future, limitless past and all this kind of stuff. But even the author is like, but I can't get my head totally around that. Like, I, mm-hmm. I know there's this eternity idea, but even in all my wisdom, I still can't grasp it. I still can't fully understand that. And so he refrains again. To, so be joyful, do good, enjoy your work, eat and drink. Um, yeah, and all that. And, and and be okay that whatever God has done, he's done it. And that's how it's going to be. And so, so worship, fear Lord, and move forward. Yeah, I think understanding, I mean, and I guess wisdom looks like realizing how foolish you really are. And that's maybe some of the tension uh, that this person is experiencing, but understanding that God has all the control and that we have none of the control seems to be one of the central understandings of this, of this wise, the teacher is saying like, I realized I couldn't control anything. And when I tried to control it, it was all meaningless, Yeah. but I know that God has control and I know that he's put something in me that longs for that. It's what's that C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis quote about how if you find in yourself a longing for 
something else you must oh, be yeah. made for another world or something yep. like that yep. that that's i mean that's a little more of a positive spin on this but i think that's what the teacher's saying yeah i mean it's the pascal too of the the god-shaped vacuum there's something that we feel like is missing and we're longing for um but uh it's just a reminder that that there's something greater that we don't even know we we may not be able to fully know um that 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 we are created for um and, and there's some tension throughout this book for me of like, I, I'm someone that likes answers and I like more concreteness and I don't like sometimes being like, well, just, just deal with it. <laughs> just take it by faith. It is how it is. Just deal with it. And, um, but I mean, it, part of the fact that we are finite and God is infinite is this very idea that comes from this book of like, look, like no matter how much you try to go after wisdom, even, even your pursuit of God himself, that there's going to be gaps because God's ways are not your ways. And that's, you need to be okay with that. And, um, I mean, it's Paul's argument in Romans nine of like, you're, you're the pot and that he's the potter. And so at some point there's going to be a gap where you just cannot know all that God knows. You cannot fathom all that God is. And so, um, and and that's okay. And that's actually a good thing. And so, uh, we get this from dust to dust, um, statement, uh, that, um, even everything under the sun is really just corrupt. Like even, even there's righteous people that are still wicked um, and God will deal with it. There will be some sense of judgment and, yeah. and, the, and the narrator actually will come around on that idea by the end. Um, and, and, but, but the, the Ecclesiastes writers did, he's still here. So sort of going, but we're still like animals. We still die. It's still part of our story, but at least find meaning in work, which once again, is a bit of a refrain over and over that, that we'd find this meaning in work, uh, which Sarah brought up in our talking before it of a little bit of this callback to, to maybe even Genesis uh, around the curse and work and all labor and toil and striving that that is part of the curse that we sort of struggle with. Um, and and I think I think the writer's hitting on some of that as well. Yeah, it's like an expanded version of that Genesis right. three curse of working the ground. Right. I think. You know, here we're, we're learning from the teacher, too, that, like, you don't ignore suffering. Grieve it. It's unjust. It's not right. The wicked are, are causing people harm, and that's not okay. Yeah. No, we don't, we don't find a resolution to it like we nope. do in other books of the Bible. Nope. But it's okay to acknowledge that, like, it hurts to acknowledge this, but we are still to see it and to grieve it. Yeah. Uh, but then he reminds me, even if you're working, you might just be doing it because you have envy for others. And even that's vanity. So, like, yeah. if that's the reason you're working, don't chase after that. It's just not worth it. Um, and once again, you're reminded it's still better to be a fool or it's still better to be wise than, than to be a fool who's lazy. And he uses these analogy of these hands, like with crossed hands, almost like, um, you're crossing your arms and not doing anything. He says, but also don't be two handed. Don't be one that's going to try to grasp for everything that they could possibly get. Like you're greedy and trying to get more and more and more, but have this posture, which is one hand in the pocket almost and one hand out, which is, um, I think I'd heard Tim Mackey talk about that as a, as a position of rest, like, there's, there's still something to be had, but mm-hmm. it, but it's not a position of like grasping and going after, but it's also not one of total um, laziness, um, yeah. which is good. It's a good picture. Yeah. And I think there's a challenge here to, to embrace and be grateful for the relationships that God has given you as well. I mean, even if it's all meaningless, whether relationships or no relationships, he's like, it's still better to be in a relationship than to be isolated. Yeah. And, and the preacher warns against going through the motions, even religiously or vows you might commit that you would not make rash vows, which was such a big theme through the Old Testament. Um, 
but that we would rightfully fear him. It, it's interesting because yeah. there's there's not a there's not a ton of theology in this book uh, in terms of describing who the God of the story is, other than he's sovereign. But the author definitely takes a position of fear and cautious reverence towards who God is in the story. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, I mean, again, I think it's a sort of philosophical argument. Like I've tried all the things I've tried following God. I've tried a pleasure. I've tried work and I've kind of landed that even if it's all meaningless, I think the best, the best yeah. one to go with is fearing God. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and he is sovereign over all things. So stop trying to be. Uh, and so, uh, we, we deal with, um, the, once again, a statement about the oppressed, um, almost like there's a pyramid system. There's always someone at the top of it, but even the people at the top who have wealth and possessions, like can't even sleep at night because they're worried about their possessions. So, mm-hmm. um, just about every level there's, there's some vanity across the spectrum of society. And so eat, drink, be merry, try to enjoy your work. Never know how long things will last. God sovereign over the timing of those. And so, um, even if you had lots of kids at a funeral, like it's, he almost says a few times in his statement, it's kind of better that you hadn't been born um, because this world doesn't good all this confusion and all this suffering. Um, it's definitely some bleak statements by him yeah. sprinkled throughout. Yeah. I think what he's really hitting on here is, is the comparison between contentment and greed and how greed is destructive and contentment is better. And so you can have a lot or you can have little and you can either desire more or you can be content with what you have. And this, again, this wise person saying, we are never going to be satisfied if we seek more, but you will find joy or enjoyment in this sort of meaningless life if you choose to be content with what God has given you. Uh, And that's a lesson for all of us. And that's a lesson that transcends scripture, really. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so contentment is what the challenge here is and what the invitation is I guess by the teacher. Yeah. And then uh, out of all the good things that he's talked about, which is like eating and drinking and good work, he also points out that a good name, a good mm-hmm. name is, is important. Um, even though things are very vanity oriented, he, he kind of points that out and he says, it's better to be in the house right after that. It's better to be in the house in the morning than the house, like the, the celebration, the party. Um, and I think that matters. I think the, the good name is even tied to that statement coming right after that of um, you want to create a good name for yourself. Be, be amongst the broken care care for those who are mourning be be in the place with the suffering and the broken because no one remembers the name of just the people who threw a great party that they remember the people that that were there in the midst of suffering and death and 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 understood the soberness of what this life is really all about yeah and so um yeah and the author keeps pointing out the struggle like even the righteous even the righteous are sinful there's folly there um it, to to think that we can't that we're just going to be perfect, that, that there's still a struggle. It could still feel like vanity trying to be the perfect version of ourself. Yeah. And the heart of the problem is ultimately our sinfulness yep. and it's our wickedness. Uh, and as, as counterintuitive as it may seem, the greatest wisdom in this world is to trust God over circumstances and appearances. So yeah. trust what you can't see. And if a king has a command, you should listen to it. <laughs> it's something that you can't control, just like death or the wind. Um, that's, that's the king's command. and You just need to live with it. Yeah, it's interesting how he's like, you know, if the king does something you disagree with, don't bail on him right away. Um, Guide him towards truth. Don't be intimidated into being quiet. I mean, I do think there's some good advice here as far as working under leadership of supervisors or bosses or people where you question or challenge everything they do or some of the things they do, deciding when to stay and when to go. And then a, re- a refrain again of about those who fear God. Like, and mm-hmm. There's wicked who may have a lot of admirers whose life may go longer. But really who it goes well for are those who fear God. 
Yeah, there's blessing for those who fear and trust God. And even if it feels useless or fruitless, the long-term investment of fearing God and obeying him instead of man is worth it. So though we oftentimes don't see people get what they deserve in this life, it doesn't, what we would say, what they deserve. You know, we believe that we all probably deserve that. But um, it doesn't mean that how we live doesn't make a difference. And so even if I don't see the end, I see the now and I'm expected to live an upright life. Yeah, the author doesn't exactly tell you what, what the going well for looks like. But he is contrasting it to things that we would traditionally define as going well for, which is uh, fit, ending life with a bunch of admirers and ending life mm-hmm. with a long life. Um, he he can contrasts going well for those who fear God to that. And so there's definitely some upside downness uh, to what he might mean by uh, what it might go well for in these yeah. in these. Uh, those who fear God. I wonder if it's this idea of contentment, like enjoying what you have before you, eating, drinking, be merry, enjoying the life of your youth, whatever it is, Um, being grateful and content with what you have right in front of you in the moment. And a reminder that we we can't know God's ways. Like Mm -hmm. good good things happen to wicked, bad things happen to the righteous. Um, We we can't know on this side of eternity what that looks like or why. Uh, We leave it up to God. And so we keep enjoying the good things we have and keep working on something we enjoy. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know if it's our, like our modern time or because we live on this side of, of Christ's incarnation, we, we interact with God very much like he is one of us and we are image bearers. And so that's true in many ways, but this book really emphasizes that God is other. He is outside of our understanding and our comprehension. And it's good every once in a while to dwell on that aspect of God, I think, rather than just the the presence of God, which are, I mean, both are really good and important. Um, But understanding that God knows and that's enough and I will never know and never understand and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, And the good, the wise, who, who they are, what is wise, it's all in God's hands. And we can't always even tell if we're doing the good and the wise um, yeah. or doing good and evil. But at the end of the day, everybody dies. That's sort of the, this little caption statement around this one section where it's like, we all share the same fate. Uh, right. We're going through this together. And you can try to figure it out, but you're not going to. And so he leaves us. But once you're dead, it's too late. You're not going to be able to. You're not going to be able to do that. So enjoy life now. Like At least while you're living, enjoy the things that God has given you. Eat, drink. Buy some nice clothes for yourself, put some oil on your head for whatever exactly that specifically means and and find find and enjoy your spouse. Yeah. Do those things. They're gifts. Enjoy them. Right. And be content with what you have. Don't yeah. be greedy for them. Don't try to eat more or drink, you know, any of that kind of stuff oh, yeah. because then it's going to lead to dissatisfaction. But when you're content, no matter how it ends, you'll be like, well, it's I mean, it's OK. I'm content. And and your experiences may feel like bad luck, which he kind of gets into next. It may feel like that. And there's things that you just can't predict and, and things might be seemingly going well, but then they turn, turn around pretty quickly. And, and that's part of life too. And then we get this little kind of parable about wisdom, about this mighty king who's about to go to arms against this small little village. And there's a poor wise man who helps save the village from battle. And, and, and the parable sort of like lefty, leaving you with who's, who's the hero of the story. It's this forgotten poor wise man who's really the hero not the king with all the might and all the power um and so the hero is this wise man yeah. uh, in the story i really like the section or the passage or the i guess the metaphor here about how if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge he must use more strength but wisdom helps one succeed so this idea of how obedience for us as even followers of Christ is more difficult if we kind of lose our edge, but we are sharpened through our study of scripture and our practice of living out what we believe. Um, so even there's this glimpse of wisdom in, in what it looks like to 
how we can be more obedient. And that's yeah. through being sharpened rather than dull. And if you want to even literally apply that parable, I mean, wisdom is better than warfare. And, mm. um, and, and so, yeah. That's good. New Testament. Let's jump to Second Corinthians, uh, where we pick up. Uh, and Paul uh, talks about treasures in a 90s Christian band uh, <laughs> called Jars of Galay. Yeah, these earthen vessels, which uh, for them, uh, they would have easily set their minds to these clay pots that just about every household had. They're useful, they're common, uh, but they were very breakable. If you dropped it, it was, it was gone. Um, it was going to crack. And even, even if you squeezed it hard, it would probably crack. Um, and so Paul's kind of pointing out the 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 uniqueness that we have this amazing treasure of the good news of the gospel of what God is doing in the world and God has chosen to to put this amazing treasure into these earthen vessels these little jars of clay that are breakable they're fragile um, and and just the contrasting of like we as humans are the bearers of the greatest news of the universe. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah. And Paul keeps going with that analogy, I think. And um, I even think back to the Gideon story, like it's the breaking of the jars of clay in the Gideon story where the light suddenly shines and, and drives yeah. out the forces. And and I think Paul has a little bit of a similar idea. He doesn't quote Gideon. So that's on me, but uh, a similar idea that they like Paul and his, and his um, other coworkers, like they've experienced a lot of attacks. They've experienced brokenness that they are not glamorous as uh, apostles at all. Uh, and, and in some ways they're like Jesus in doing that. And they kind of point that out and, and what they did to Jesus. They're also doing to Paul and these guys are persecuting them. They're beating them. They're suffering. But what Jesus did to them, which was coming back to life, he's now doing in the, in the disciples and in, in the apostles and also to this church by bringing them back to life. And, and Paul's like, this is all for your advantage. Like this suffering that you think for some reason discredits my ministry is the exact ministry that Jesus has for the world that defies sometimes your thinking, defies the wisdom of the world. But this is how the gospel goes forth. Yeah. I, I really love reading this section after we just talked through Ecclesiastes, because I think, again, it gives perspective, but it gives a hopeful perspective. We don't lose heart. Even if it looks like everything is going in the opposite direction of how you want it to, there's suffering, there's calamities, there's struggles. Um, We don't lose heart as Christians because we have this eternal weight of glory that we are waiting for. And just wait for a second. I mean, think of like the hardest thing you've experienced that income and the heaviness of that, I mean, it is incredibly heavy. Some days you can't get out of bed, it's so heavy. And that is considered to be light and momentary in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, which we are to receive in Christ. And that is different. Like when we live with that encouragement and hope, we are going to live different than the rest of the world. And so we understand even, even if we don't have the full perspective, we don't know, we know how the story ends. We know where we are right now. We don't know how we're going to get there, but we know how it ends. Yeah. Yeah. It's as if Ecclesiastes is writing like, uh, why am I suffering and why is there suffering to begin with? And what do I do about it? And the writer of Ecclesiastes being like, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> and Paul, Paul kind of circling up and going, okay, I'm suffering. And here's exactly why yeah. it's for you. It's not about me. It's for God's glory. It's for your benefit that I'm suffering. And so, um, yeah, he, he actually takes it off of himself and removes the question and says it's for God and it's for y'all. Um, yeah. and, and he gives context and purpose and meaning. And not only that, but the temporalness of some uh, suffering. So, yeah, and, and Paul starts talking about tents and heavenly dwellings and um, starts talking about what really what, what, what the future holds. And um, he's confident. And he says, we know we have this home in heaven. Um, and he starts talking about heavenly homes versus earthly homes and, and the fact that we mm-hmm. groan that where we're at right now is not 
not the complete. It's not, it's not true. It's limited. It's temporary. And we long for something superior, eternal, just almost like that, that, that eternity that's put on our heart. We long for that. And, and we groan in the in-between because we're just not there. Uh, there's something waiting for us and we look forward to it. So it, all of that helps us endure everything that's happening now. That's part of, part of following Jesus is the endurance side of things. And, and I think Paul's highlighting that here. And he, he states, just states straight up, like it's a fact. We walk by faith and not by sight. And this is always going to be the case while we are living on earth. And it's why we need to work to know scripture and understand it, because it's really going to be the fuel that is going to help us to continue to walk by faith. But if I just, if you're someone who doubts, if you're a skeptic, I think this passage reminds us that it is okay to be skeptical. It's okay to have doubt. Walking by faith means when you continue to move forward and trust something even in the midst of doubt. So it's okay to say, God, I'm having a hard time believing this because I can't see it, but I'm going to trust it's true. So be encouraged if you are a doubtful person or a skeptical person. It doesn't mean you are less of a mature believer or less of a Christian. You get the same joy of walking by faith that others do. Yeah. And then we get uh, this great section on the Ministry of Reconciliation, uh, which is one of the highlights of this book. And and Paul starts, I think, with their struggle to, where they're still regarding teachers uh, according to their flesh. He's like um, an outward appearance, th- this idea of, of – of, um, he, he talks about so that they may um, – He's trying to equip them so that they may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances. And and um, so so the question is, okay, well, then what should we regard? If it's not about outward appearances, what 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 is the difference maker of being a believer or not? And Paul sort of gets into his his, his this gospel presentation in some ways to talk about it's not about status or outward appearances. It's about um, this new creation. This this mm-hmm. and this new creation is about this reconciliating work that God is doing to reconcile people back to himself and he does it through forgiving and dealing with people's trespasses and then and then Paul sort of goes I mean, we have that message of reconciliation like God has given us that 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 work to proclaim this reconciliation to to make this appeal through us that that people would be reconciled to God that God would forgive sin and 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 deal with that and for our sake one of the greatest one-liners in this book for our sake he made him who knew no sin so that in him we would become the righteousness of god the great exchange kind of statement um and so and then paul kind of in chapter three and i'll let sarah talk in a second but but i want to keep unpacking because i think paul's making um and connecting this argument right after this that that he seems to point out that they're missing out on this sort of tremendous message in some ways that that there's something about the grace of god that has come to them that that he really wants them to to not have done it in vain that he's worried that um that that they're gonna miss out on um or or that the grace has come but they've totally squandered it in some ways And, and i think um he starts talking about um, all the ways that he has removed barriers in his ministry that, that Paul has taken away all these things that, that almost like he has a clean conscience. Like I have, I have worked so hard for you guys to, to make, to make this possible. And then he starts speaking of, of them withholding affections. And I think Paul kind of connects the, the reconciliation of God in chapter five to this teaching in chapter six to really kind of, draw the Corinthians back because as we pointed out, there's some tension between Paul and, and the church and it has to do with these other people that are coming and speaking and leading and, and drawing people away or telling them that Paul's not worth following because he's suffering or because he's poor or whatever it is. And, and Paul's like, look, I, I am, I, 
God is a reconciling God. And so if that's true, that then, then may we do that. And he's like, I've laid it all on the table. I have an open heart. I've tried not to put any barriers and I need you guys now to have an open heart back towards me. Mm. But yeah, mm-hmm. but there's a lot in this whole section. I know it's really hard to kind of try to summarize it. Uh, I feel like we could talk about this for a long time. I think what stood out to me is just that our understanding of what it means to be atoned by Christ or justification in Christ, it, it changes everything. And, you know, we use these words, substitutionary atonement or, um, and it, those are big words just to describe that passage or that verse that Chris read for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him, in him we might become the righteousness of God uh, because of Christ's work we are cleansed um, and as a response to that we are a new creation because of that work we are not a better version of our old selves we are a new creation we are compelled we are controlled by the love of Christ and we will become his ambassadors so think about this role of what it means to be an ambassador for a second what they do in other countries and this is who we are and we do it at all times we do it when it's easy and we do it when it's hard, but we do it because we are driven by love for others. We know what it means to be reconciled to Christ and we want to see others do that as well. Yeah. And then we get um, a section, a line around being unequally yoked that uh, most of the time I hear applied to marriage, but in this context, it it seems not. uh, Paul's not even talking about marriage, but um, I'm not saying that's still not great wisdom and teaching around marriage, but um, it it seems like if Paul's following up around this sort of breach between their relationship, um, it might be that Paul's speaking to these teachers, these charismatic, maybe philosophically astute, well-to-do, they're not suffering, they're not being persecuted. These teachers, the epitome of success, in, particularly in a Greek culture, um, that, that they've introduced this problem for Paul. And Paul's sort of telling them, like, look, don't be yoked with them. Like, why are you listening to these people who don't even seem to know Jesus and, and, and are accusatory towards me and causing all these problems? Like, don't, don't give into that. Like that is, that is not of God. And, and, and you are mixing, uh, what you say uh, is true about Jesus with these things that are not, it's taking, it's making things unclean by you listening to these things. It kind of draws back to some old Testament ideas of like be set apart. You you can't be one who pursues things that the world says is of value and pursues things that Jesus says of value because they're not the same. And, and, mm-hmm. and for Paul, it's like, look like success and fame and well to do and all that kind of stuff. It's just not what the kingdom's values are. And so, um, his his striving and his suffering and his willing to pour himself out for the other and not for himself. That's what the kingdom is about. And so he's he's saying like we have to you have to be a church that knows the difference and strives for the difference, strives to be cleansed and holy and distinct from the thoughts of the world. Yeah, I mean, when you are a new creation, you have you have less in common, uh, you have little in common with those who have not yet been renewed in Christ. So consider for a moment, and this is something I know in my head and I don't necessarily feel it or believe it always, but I should, that we have more in common as Christians with an impoverished woman living on the streets of South Asia who's a believer than I do with my next door neighbor who doesn't know the Lord. And this is how incredibly powerful the gospel of Christ is. It really is everything. And so we need to live in such a way that we are not connected or... I guess yoked is the right word to people in a way that will cause us to compromise our convictions or live like we are part of the world when we are new creations. Yeah. And and Paul, even right after speaking of like tabernacling and stuff like that, he even commands them to go cleanse yourself. Now, 
if you remember, if you're a good Old Testament student, how do you cleanse yourself? Like you can't do that. You cleanse yourself by offering a sacrifice at the temple. That's how you're made clean again. And so uh, I think for the New Testament believer, I mean, this is Paul still pointing back to Jesus's reconciling work of, of you know how to cleanse yourself. You return back to Jesus and you fear the Lord. Like there's still an action oriented um, working towards uh, sanctification, but um, but that we remember the cross, which is really our cleansing work. Yeah. So uh, we'll continue in more of that it's next so, week. I felt it's like so we weird like, to like stop. We did no justice to that. I mean, there's so much. And I mean, I guess maybe we did a little bit, but there's so much more. Yeah. So <laughs> we had a couple Psalms and a proverb this week. Uh, Psalm 116, uh, which includes talk about suffering and yeah. but God's deliverance in the midst of suffering as well. But, but even the author being like, look, even if, even if there was death, like there's still, um, there's like, it's still precious in, in, in the, the death of the saints. Like it's still, even then there's still goodness in it. Um, right. I think it's again, a, like a theme of, I think the theme of this week has been perspective. Like you have to, even though you don't understand the whole story, you have perspective in knowing that there is one who does and he is good and he is loving. Yep. Psalm 141. Um, I really love the prayer that I don't know who wrote it. I don't know if we know who wrote it. I don't remember prayed that, that if we were all to pray that God would guard our mouths and lips and that our hearts wouldn't be drawn to wicked or evil deeds. And then, um, if we would pray and ask God that he would bring people into our lives to rebuke us when we're sinning and that we would receive it. I mean, I think what would change if we all prayed that and lived by that? Yeah. And then Proverbs 2, we get a whole lot of talk of wisdom, which is funny coming right after Ecclesiastes, where it's like, <laughs> so it's like even wisdom is falling. It's all meaningless. And then this one's like, pursue wisdom, even like you're seeking gold, pursue it, go after it. Um, and yeah, but wisdom, yes. I mean, this is where we get into that conversation of like all around the table. Like one saying like, I pursued all the wisdom in the world and it still wasn't enough. Another one's like, yeah, but you should keep pursuing wisdom because you, how else are you going to know the right path and the right way to live? Um, and so, yeah, keep walking righteously, pursue those things. Yeah. So next week. Yeah. So I think for the Old Testament, I'm actually going to hit on a psalm. We're going to read Psalm 139, which probably a lot of us know. It's a big psalm that is taught in women's circles a lot. So when you read it this time, I want to challenge you. Read it for making God the main character. What do you see about God and who he is and his character? Before you look at like how great it is that you were made by God, look at what God did in the making. And I think it'll change your perspective. Um, And in the New Testament, you're just going to read a lot about giving and a lot about stewardship. And I think what, at least what I found myself doing, and I think probably what most of us would do as Americans is we're going to have a great time reading about it in the context of the Corinthians and not stop to reflect on the context for ourselves. So I want to challenge you to read it and put it into what does it mean for me now as well? Because stewardship is a hard thing for us in America yep. and generosity is a hard thing for us. So it should hit home um, and, and I don't know, prick your heart a little bit. Yep. And for the Old Testament next week, we're going to jump around a little bit. We're actually going to hit three different books. We're going to end Ecclesiastes, jump into First Kings, and then jump back to Second Chronicles. So it's a little bit all over the map. But um, try to think through the context of those books and who's writing and what's going on um, as best as you can, even though we're jumping about a bit. And, and we're going to get a few more chapters of Solomon's reign. And take a moment maybe even to go back to Deuteronomy 17, where it's like, here's what a king is supposed to be like according to the law. And then be like, okay, how is Solomon doing? <laughs> is he upholding these things yes. at all or not? And 
And it almost feels a bit like the Samson story where like there's a few vows that he as a Nazarite are supposed to be doing. How's Samson doing with those vows? Uh, I think Solomon's a good uh, litmus test too That's of like, good. all right, how are you doing with these uh, commands of what a king's supposed to be like? And then New Testament. Yeah. Uh, this is like one of the most common sections that preachers like to use about giving. Um, but, but think, think through the real why, like, Paul doesn't just go, hey, uh, I'm collecting an offering for this church in Jerusalem. C- can you give it? He, he does spend some time giving a theology, a, a real conviction as to why they would be generous. So think through that and, and how it motivates giving. That's not from con- not from like um, shame and, and oh, I ought to do this, but, but more, um, yeah, just think through how Saul, Saul, or Paul um, gives them a greater motivation than that. That's good. So that's it for this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.